You're listening to 3CR Radio. And you are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, political commentator Neil Farrow joins us. We also chat with Luciano and Angela Bailey about the Queerways exhibition at the Victorian Pride Centre. But first, our interview with Dina Curie about exposure sites at community venues in Melbourne this week. Dean, quite a shock for the community about the exposures. Look, it's been a interesting couple of days. Let's let's be real. Yeah, it's been a bit of a, a crazy week with the uh, reality that yeah, there is someone who, with a possible Omicron exposure that was at Circuit and possibly Molly's and Peel and in a queer spaces in our communities this week. It's been a bit of a shock to wake up to on a Wednesday morning, and so close to Christmas as well. Look, there's been panic, I think is a nice and easy way to say it. I think everyone has. Everyone's still really conscious of the fact that we are living in a pandemic and working amongst it, but we really have moved very quickly in a very short amount of time in the past month. And a lot of people can forget just how, you know, just how fast that has been and just how quickly we have moved forward. The What, what is really interesting, what I did see, there was a lot of... Um, a lot of people who got the messages, got the information, got, have gone and gotten tested on the day, gotten everything sorted or isolating, doing everything they're meant to do. It's the panic that carries on further from that with the rest of the community. I, on Wednesday, my family have never been so interested about the fact that I'm gay uh, because I might have been at a gay club with the number of family members that have sent me messages before 9am in the morning, <laughs> you know. So the reactions have been really, really interesting in the broader community. Tell us more about that. Look, it's been, I think it's been extremes because you're right. It, we are, Christmas is literally just around the corner. And when everyone looks at these restrictions and what a possible seven-day isolation means or 14-day isolation or maybe not got, being able to go and see their families, like there are so many of us in our communities that have just been hanging on for the past 18 months and, and have really been pushing to the fact that, you know what, I'm going to be able to leave the state. I'm going to be able to see my family members. I'm going to be able to see my loved ones at Christmas. And having this happen so sharply, quite a few people are doing a bit of a 360. I know quite a few people that have decided for the next week that they're going to just stay in. They're going to take it very simple. They've already gone to the shops and loaded up on food. Plenty of people have been selling their tickets to parties that are happening over the weekend. And and they're like, it's not that I don't trust the party, but I want to see my family. It's not about... a year ago or even six months ago, it's about a holiday. It has been really interesting to see the change that's been. I want to connect with my loved ones. That's what's really important. And and the fear that there could be something that could happen to not make that happen is a little bit strong for some people. But we need to remember we've been through a lot in the past, you know, 18 months in a lot of different ways. Everyone does react, you know, from a gut extreme place at the beginning of things. And then we just need to inform everyone, give them the information they need, and then step it back a little bit so that everyone can properly do things. On Wednesday, in fact, I got so many people asking, should they get tested, who have no connection to any individuals or any, even the space, but maybe just in case, because the panic that this has happened within our communities means it could affect them. So this is affecting the whole way the community is going to, I guess, socialise over Christmas and New Year. That must be making the venues worried. Look, it was going to be the case anyway. This is the thing that we need to remember. 
we we are working and living during a pandemic. We have restrictions in place. That there's a new normal, but I can't stress this enough. It's never been normal. So the businesses are doing what they can. On Wednesday night, Circuit Molly's is reopened. You know, like two. You know, the the, the processes are in place. Thanks to everyone's COVID plans on how to handle these situations. I my bigger concern is just stress for staff because for many of our entertainment venues, it's been a real stretch for them with their staffing and. And, and with this situation for a week or a period of time, that stretch is going to be there again while people have to isolate. So I want to stress for everyone to just be a little kinder to your hospitality staff, like in general, and all the staff in general, just to take that edge off because everyone's balancing as best they can at this time. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the staff at Circuit and Peel. How are the venues managing the staff situation with so many staff sidelined in well, quarantine? Well, from what I've been and and this is the this is the part of it when we talk about it. It's it's sitting and and talking in facts because a lot of people are assuming all staff have been taken off the board. You know, the businesses are doing what they can to work within the restrictions that they can. The staff that need to isolate are doing that, and they've reached out to their teams and further parts of every space and place to be able to get. Get that help to be able to keep moving forward and being safe spaces for our communities. What about the lead? Uh, I guess this is going to impact on them as well. Well, it, I, I, it impacts on everyone. You know, it's it's that thing where what does it mean for this one business or for another? You know, every party, every business, everyone has done a little bit of a freeze from an original plan that they've got, you know, planned over the next couple of weeks because suddenly there's, we all know there's Omicron, there's this, there's that, but suddenly the reality is right sitting here in front of us and it's been to a space that we go to regularly. You know, on Wednesday, I spoke to a lot of the different business owners, just connecting, how do we communicate things? What should we do? And I mean, it was really great on Wednesday morning, in fact, just to get the communication from our Victorian LGBTIQA plus commissioner, putting the information out there for everyone to see and then share and communicate correctly and accordingly. The thing that we need to remember is to deal in fact and not uh, fiction. I think on Wednesday, I understand everyone jumps to extremes, but I, I saw a lot of information spreading around within the community that people that aren't necessarily directly connected to the space or the possible case, oh, I thought it was this or I thought it was that. Let's take it back to the source of the information and what that means. One of the big things I did put up on social media on the day is a lot of people can have confusion between Molly's and Circuit because they are two separate spaces and businesses. But under the current restrictions that we have and the way in which QR code scanning happens, your entry to that space is one doorway and the QR code is the same for both. So while a lot of mainstream media has been focusing on the word Circuit, it's actually Circuit and Molly's, which many in our communities already know. So it's important for us to go back to the spaces and the places, like the social media of the venues, like the touchstones with health that we have in, have in our communities, to be able to use that information to support everyone moving forward. There's a panic. Things have quietened up a little bit, but I think as everyone breathes a little bit more and gets informed, they'll be able to step back out feeling as safe to, and as comfortable as they can. But if you need to sit back, if you want to stay inside, if you want to take it a little easy, do that. There's no rush and there's no stress because we've all been going through it for the past two years. Well, that's right. We're so used to doing stuff online. I imagine quite a few things will start kicking in online. Well, I guess we're just going to have to wait and see because this doesn't mean a shutdown. This is, I think, um, everyone, I mean, even on Wednesday, I, I, I stopped doing trivia virtually and in person a couple of weeks ago. Um, that I do every single week. And and a lot of people are like, well, with this going on, aren't you going to go back to virtual as well? 
And at the moment, everyone's just waiting to see what's going to be the smartest and safest way. Let's remember that for people who are double vaxxed, which would be everyone who's in the venue, you know, there's a seven-day isolation point from the point of exposure, which is Friday, which means that seven days from Friday is, is the period of time they have to get tested once to see if there's anything they need to be concerned about. And then a second time, the day before they may be released, if they have both tests being negative, they're able to step back out into the world this weekend. I just think everyone's stepping a little bit more cautiously. uh, And that's okay because that's what we have to be working with now. So many people are talking to you and kind of, you know, rely on you, if you like, to be a bit of a conduit for the community. What's that pressure like for you? I mean, I know you take it in your stride, but gee, it's a lot, isn't it? I'll be honest. Yeah, look, it is. It's it's a self-imposed burden. Um, I'll say it that way. There's many of us within our communities that do this. And and we just try to find, you know, I'm I'm one of many and we just try to find different ways to be able to give people the information they need and help to connect people. We know when it comes to our communities that, you know, w- w- we have to take a double, triple, quadruple pronged approach to how we inform and communicate. And I, just like many other people, we're doing what we can to be able to help facilitate getting that information forward in a stronger way. I think it's one of the things I love about our community, you know, like it's not just looking to one organisation or one space of information, but all of us working together to keep everyone informed and more importantly, connected, which I know this week there's been panic. You know, people have really panicked. A lot of people don't want to be locked down again. A lot of people don't want things to happen. And for me, I've been able to just go into a gear of, okay, cool, because I every day I just expect to, this event could be cancelled. I'm still planning shows for next year that could be cancelled. It's just, a, we've spoken about it before. I've just had to go into a gear of, you know, not hoping, pretending everything's 100% fine, but also really being grateful for everything I have around me and the community that I get to still be a part of. And that's still going on, you know? So let's remember that. Our community is still moving forward. Our spaces and places are still celebrating the end of the year and being together. And we can still do that, even if you just want to do that in a more cautious way. And I guess the plus side to this is it's happened now. It's happened before Christmas. So in some ways, it's given people a wake-up call. So over you know Christmas and New Year, they're not complacent, that they do take responsible and sensible precautions. Yeah, which we we should be doing all the time. I mean, even when there were talks of, oh, we're going to get rid of masks soon and stuff like that. I've been, I still wear my mask in spaces that I don't have to. I still have my mask with me wherever I go. And that's my choice. And that's completely fine. You know, sometimes people in the street have said to me, you know, you know, don't need to be wearing that. And I'm like, well, this isn't Facebook. I also don't need to hear your opinion. But the thing with it all is we are all responsible for the steps and steps we take in regard to protecting ourselves and therefore protecting other people in what we do and how we do it. And those steps that we take, remembering, you know, washing our hands as best we can, wearing our masks when we feel comfortable to, you know, if you don't, if you feel okay not to, that's all right too. We're, vaxxing is the most important thing that we can be doing now that we have the um, booster date being moved forward to five months like i'm able to get my my booster shot next week i was a little bit panicked in fact the day that i was meant to be getting my booster shot was midsummer carnival next year so i'm glad that i can get it a little earlier and that that's what makes all the difference vaccinations looking after each other and you know what if you do know people in your communities or in our communities that are freaking out a little bit touch base with them that was the other thing that made me really happy wednesday morning i joke about my family sending me a whole lot of messages but there were plenty of people in our queer communities just spreading the word 
checking in and touching base as best they can. And that's what we need to remember to, to do because we're all going through this together. Dina Curry, always great to have you as a conduit for the community, but also showing leadership and, uh, you know, being a voice of reason. Thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. My pleasure.
Sinead O'Connor there. Well, the Victorian government has removed exemptions under the state's Equal Opportunity Act that allowed religious organisations to discriminate. And I chatted with political commentator Neil Farrow. So, look, I'm really pleased with these amendments in Victoria, and I think they're a polar opposite of some of what's happening federally at the moment. So the amendments in Victoria, and and I'm sort of paraphrasing, but effectively will give a a large amount of protection to LGBTI people in schools and LGBTI people in employment in schools as well. So effectively, it's it's narrowing what's been called the shield of religious discrimination um, into areas to protect LGBTI people in the provision of key services like education. And it's really setting up an interesting dynamic with the federal government, as you alluded to, isn't it? Because, I mean, we've got these reforms. If the religious discrimination bill is passed, they would be overridden by the federal government. Yeah, and that's a really interesting play for the federal government to actually override state law. So what we've seen in Australia is a number of jurisdictions have progressively moved to make their discrimination protections broader and and to make sure there's less exemptions around their discrimination rules. Um, And what we're seeing from the federal government is a very deliberate attempt to effectively override all of the states in this area should their religious protection laws pass federal parliament. So it's it's a damaging precedent for a, a couple of reasons from my perspective. One is is not just the fact that I think the federal law is bad law, um, but at a at a more philosophical level, it's actually overriding a whole heap of state jurisdictions as well, which I don't think is a, a good precedent to set for any government, um, particularly in areas that have largely been state realm for sort of 120 odd years. And it sets up that narrative that the uh, federal government is pushing as we head towards the election, that's the prime minister against the states. And that's a narrative that has arisen, I think, largely through COVID and continued to sort of evolve and develop. Um, but, you know, the federal government, it makes sense for the federal government to do some things. And, you know, if the federal government's pushing all of Australia forward, but this is a very regressive law that's being proposed federally. Um, and not only is it an impactful law at federal level, but the fact that it is overriding all of the states creates further complications. And if you look historically, examples of the federal government overriding the states only tend to occur when, uh, you know, it's impacting progressive issues. So, you know, in the ACT, the ACT had its marriage laws overridden by the federal government. Um, In the Northern Territory, the Northern Territory's euthanasia laws were overridden by the federal government. So there's a huge amount of hypocrisy over the fact that largely it's only conservative governments that override state law and not the other way around. Of course, there were some emotional scenes in Parliament when the amendments were passed here in Victoria. Uh, Harriet Shing, the uh, Parliamentary Secretary for LGBTIQ Communities, cried. Uh, What do you know about her personal journey with this legislation? I know she's a mate of yours. Look, I think um, Harriet is an amazing person and I think if anyone here hasn't seen her speech um, on this issue, it's well and truly worth sort of the five or ten minutes and sitting down and, and watching her parliamentary speech on this issue, just as she was passionate sort of 12 months ago when other reformers went through the House of Representatives and the Legislative Council in Victoria. You know, Harriet is one of these few people that is genuinely committed, that is deeply passionate, um, that is smart and articulate and has dealt with diversities and, and discrimination and everything else from her background. You know, she's she comes from a, a different cultural and linguistically diverse background. She's a female. She's a lesbian. She's open about the fact that she has um, some cognitive um, 
uh, cognitive differences and, and things like that as well. And, and all of those are there to create sort of, in my opinion, is sort of the Victorian equivalent of Penny Wong uh, at state level around her passion and her articulation. And um, I think she's a real uh, important asset in our Victorian parliament. Very sad that, that we don't have more LGBTI people in parliament, but definitely very proud that Harriet's um, uh, having these conversations and, and compelling her colleagues in parliament to, to think more broadly and more widely. I um, mean, it's definitely a voice that's um, needed to be heard in this space. Of course, no one doubts the great job Martin Foley's doing as the Minister for our communities, but he does have a lot on his plate as Health Minister. I know many people say it's it's very advantageous for the community for him to have both portfolios, but do you think Daniel Andrews should uh, move Harriet Shing into the Ministry for LGBTIQ Communities uh, when there's the next reshuffle? Yeah, look, I actually absolutely think that Harriet um, is deserving as a, of a place in Cabinet and in the Ministry. Um, I think it is uh, disappointing that in Victoria's sort of 170-year history, we've never, ever had an out LGBTI person in our ministry or shadow ministry. Um, and I think Harriet would make an amazing contribution um, and do all Victorians proud in that space. So I have high aspirations and hopes that we'll be able to do that. I'm not quite sure when it will happen, but, you know, I think Harriet, you know, regional Victorian um, with all of her differences and perspectives um, would be, you know, making Cabinet more representative of all Victorians should she be part of it. What do you make of all the personnel changes the government's uh, experiencing uh, as it heads towards the, the election next year? I mean, I think seven MPs have announced that they won't be running. Uh, another three lost their pre-selection very recently. Uh, you know, what's going on? Look, I think it's a really, really interesting uh, challenge, um, you know, I think it's very disappointing and, and I'm paraphrasing sort of what has happened, but a lot of people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds were pushed out of their seats. A lot of women were pushed into more marginal seats. Um, and, you know, again, we've got issues of LGBTI diversity. I think it's always cautious when um, you have very centralised power and decision-making. So in Victoria at the moment, um, the Premier and effectively the Federal Leader of the Opposition are effectively running the processes for Victoria um, so, you know, this decision and the processes and, and, and the changes of, of parliamentarians is, is well and truly Dan's decision and Dan's call. Um, and I'm not 100% sure it was the right call to make. You know, there's a lot of good people who are caught in the crossfire. There are a lot of people who had um, genuinely done amazing things for their community and had nothing to do with sort of inquiries or reports and, and they were shot as well. I think it's a fairly lowly grab for power from a number of people across the party. And I'm just disappointed that a number of good people were caught in the crossfire and, and again, disappointed that um, the shuffling of the seats has resulted in probably less culturally and linguistically diverse um, representation, um, no improvements to LGBTI representation and moved a lot of women into more marginal seats. So I think it's a retrograde step um, and particularly the process about it is fairly retrograde as well. So, um, you know, I think it's a disappointing occurrence and um, I'm just hopeful that uh, common sense will prevail at some time soon and we'll recognise that Victoria and Labor as a movement is more than one person and is better when it represents the communities it serves um, and definitely more longevity for doing so as well. This must be causing a lot of internal bitterness and anger, some would say toxicity. Uh, is much of this directed towards the Premier? Uh, look, I think, you know... 
I read a great article in the paper this morning. Um, this wouldn't have happened under Steve Brax or John Brumby, um, who were much more sort of consultative and collaborative and 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 um, sort of collegiate premiers. Um, I, I'm obviously not part of caucus or cabinet, and sort of I get texts and messages and speak to a number of people. But I think you know the commentary in today's uh, age was was fairly sort of accurate in my reflection that you know this sort of purge wouldn't have happened under Brax or Brumby. Um, so you know. It, it, it sort of articulates the style and nature of leadership as well. The community got a bit of a wake-up call this week when it was announced that uh, 730 people had to self-isolate who were at circuit and the Peel uh, during certain hours on the 10th of December. A bit of a wake-up call for the community, isn't it, and the, and the broader community as well about the new variant. Look, I, I got that message. I was reading the paper again this morning um, uh, and, and sort of disappointed that it has impacted our community as it has, but sort of appreciate that um, COVID doesn't discriminate and, and, you know, can impact any cohort or or community in this regard. I think it's probably a welcome reminder that we're, for many of us, we're due for our booster shots. I'm getting my booster shot, I think, tomorrow or Friday. Um, So, you know, we've got to all play our part in this regard. And and I think historically as a community, um, we've we've navigated and worked through HIV and AIDS and and other... um, uh, pandemics and endemics in our time and, and we've just got to remain eternally vigilant in this space um, with COVID or, or with any other bits and pieces. So, you know, I think it's just a wake-up call that we should all get our booster shots, which you can now get after five months, um, and continue to contribute um, where we can um, in making our community a safe place. But, you know, always saddened to see that uh, it impacted a couple of gay venues and quite a few Victorians. On the federal front, interesting dynamic for the Prime Minister. He wants to wait until May for the election. On the other hand, if Parliament reconvenes, uh, he really runs the risk of a challenge from Peter Dutton, don't you think? Look, I think Dutton is positioning for something, but I'm not necessarily sure he's positioning before the election. Um, My vibe on that would be I think Peter Dutton is trying to position should the Liberal Party lose government to position for the next opposition leader. Um, Look, I I don't think particularly highly of, of our current Prime Minister, but I think uh, even less of Peter Dutton, and I think he will be a, a horrendously atrocious um, political um, leader wherever he may go. Um, I think Peter Dutton's probably illustrative of the fact that, you know, it's probably time for the Liberal Party to renew some, re- renew some of its... Um, uh, its members and participants. And, you know, Dutton's been there for a good couple of decades and I think his views and ideologies haven't changed from sort of 30 years past. So, you know, I don't think that highly of him, but I'm not quite sure whether he'll move before the election or after. Um, so I do hope that, um, that you know, the Liberal Party recognises that someone who's as polarising as he won't, um, won't endear themselves to the Australian electorate. It's interesting, though, isn't it? I mean, some backbenchers must be thinking Morrison can't win and Dutton must be thinking that, you know, if he doesn't challenge and if there is that window of opportunity, that's possibly his only chance to be Prime Minister. Yeah, look, it's an interesting piece. I can't sort of fathom or understand what exactly is happening in the internal uh, Liberal Party caucus federally um, in that space. I think, um, you know, my bold ambition is is I've got a lot of friends who are involved in Liberal Party politics and, and involved in the Liberal Party, and, and I'm just hopeful that more sensible moderates will join the Liberal Party, um, as I do, you know, hope that they join the Labor Party as well. But I, I do definitely think we need um, sensibility in politics and not the extremes that often come in this space. So, 
yeah, fingers crossed we don't end up with Dutton as Prime Minister. Um, I think he'll be an even worse beast for Australia than we've had over the past couple of years. Neil Farrow, always great to chat on 3CR. Have a great Christmas. Great to chat to you, James. I'm very much looking forward to the break and uh, wishing you and everybody who's listening uh, the best for the festive season and the New Year's. 
is currently underway at the Victorian Pride Centre. It's an interactive exhibition curated by Luciano and Georgia Keats and supported by the Australian Queer Archives. And I chatted with Angela Bailey from the Archives and Luciano about the exhibition. So Queerways is uh, five illustrated maps of Melbourne's queer history. Um, They sort of vaguely resemble bandanas, I think, um, and they each represent a different suburb. So we have Carlton, Pran, South Yarra, St Kilda, Collingwood, and the CBD, um, each represented um, with a map. And then dotted around the map are different black and white illustrations that visualize the stories that we've collected over the last year uh, doing research with the Australian Queer Archives and uh, through community consultation on our website. Fantastic. Now, how can people interact with Queerways? So the Queerways, there's a couple different options. Um, We had to adapt a lot of our project to COVID restrictions because we were doing a lot of the research during uh, lockdowns. So people can go on to our website and they can explore our digital queer map of Melbourne and click through and read the different Uh, stories that people had submitted and historical stories that we located within our research with the archives. Um, They can also look through our web exhibition, which will uh, be live by the time this goes to air, um, and that, or visit Victorian Pride Centre to interact with the actual illustrated maps. Those illustrated maps are augmented reality. So that means that you can hold your mobile device over your screen um, and it will bring the map to life. Different queer voices explain the stories and the histories of each of the illustrations and sort of give a context to that area within Melbourne's queer history. Um, And there's little animations and captions to go along with that to enable greater access. And tell us about some of the historical sites included in Queerways. Oh, look, there's um, a significant number of the um, the stories and the illustrations draw on the archival material within um, the Australian Queer Archives and also um, the stories that have been gathered and the history that's been um, recorded by, you know, members of the committee and volunteers for over 40 years. So um, they started storing these histories and gathering these histories from 1978 on. So it's a huge resource and um, many of the stories that um, Queer Ways have relied on were featured in the History of LGBTIQ Plus Victoria in 100 Places and Objects report. I don't know if you've heard of that one, but it was a project that we've done with Heritage Victoria. It's a 200 to 300-page document and it... Um, documents many of these sort of um, places and objects that are significant to our community across Victoria. And what part of our queer history, like, you know, really jumped out to you the most, moved you the most, if you like? Oh, look, there's there's little, I mean, we did a broad um, call out across Victoria for people to share their stories for this report. But um, a lot of them, people would know about some of those um, iconic sort of figures that really paved the way in terms of creating safer places for queer Victorians. So you've got Val Eastwood who set up up the coffee shops, um, particularly one in um, the CBD, um, which created safe places for, you know, queer community from the 50s on. Um, We've got a great range of photographs in our collection 
um, some of which the what Luciano was talking about in relation to the illustrations um, as well pick up on. So it's, you know, gay picnics in the 70s to celebrate liberation, um, banners that were um, for protests and for protests about police harassment, um, you know, so there's a whole gamut of things that um, you can draw on. How about you, Luciana? What aspects of Queer Ways are queer history capturing, if you like, affected you the most, gave you that emotional reaction? So Queer Ways is uh, the work of myself and Georgia Keats, and I think the biggest thing that we took away was the bravery of queer people throughout time, even when it was illegal to be gay and present yourself differently in society. People were really out there just living life like we do now, um, with so much more at risk, like their whole lives at risk, basically. Um, and so that was a main thing that we took away from the historical stories that queer people were always here and doing queer things. It was more hidden, but there were people out there just being themselves. Val is a great example, dressed very masculinely, um, uh, and sort of, yeah, intercepted that um, idea of the norm. Um, and we found that really impressive. I think through our community consultation, the main thing that we took away was that uh, queer people often feel so isolated and alone. And so even when we looked at stories from the past and contrasted them to experiences of young people today, um, there was still this feeling of being isolated and not connected and then finding a community um, within these sites of significance. So, Luciana, it sounds like you really wanted to capture the activist history of our community, the social justice side of it, but also the incredible bravery that, you know, uh, people people undertook to advance our rights. Yeah, 100%. We really wanted to use Queer Ways as a way to enable discussion um, cross-generationally, cross-community, sexual identity, gender identity, because we felt that um, particularly during COVID, people were so isolated and weren't able to connect with other queer people as easily. And also generally within Melbourne, venues only really cater to certain aspect as certain groups within our community. So we hoped that doing something like this and um, this project and exhibiting it uh, in the Victorian Pride Centre, which is the first purpose-built LGBTQIA uh, community space, um, that it would enable the yeah, catalyse discussion between these different groups and sort of develop more uh, empathy. And, and what a great way to encapsulate the work of, of, of the Australian Queer Archive, spanning decades, as you said, since 1978, and really showcasing that expertise uh, to the community. Yeah, look, and the exhibition also features um, some cabinets of archival material that we've um, provided for this exhibition. So they relate back to some of the stories that feature in the map. So it's always um, a real excitement for people to see some of these objects, some of these um, covers of old, the old queer magazines from the 70s, um, you know, little mementos from people's lives. Um, and how a lot of those forebears were quite, you know, across a lot of communities at that time and they'd raise money through their bars for the AIDS Council. Um, you know, they put a lot of things in place to support their community and I think that continues today and we'll see that continue with the Pride Centre as well in terms of 
um, providing connection and a safe place as well. Because I think as queer people and queer communities over the years, we know that we can never be too complacent and always sort of, you know, have our ear to the door a bit in terms of um, making sure that we keep our communities safe. So, Ange, tell us a bit more about some of the HIV AIDS history that uh, that Queer Ways uh, covers, which, of course, is, is is something that's sometimes forgotten, I think, in the current era. Yeah, look, I mean, the, the Australian Queer Archives has a lot of material in that area. Um, we were for a long time housed um, by the Victorian AIDS Council and then Thorn Harbour Health, so we did have a good relationship with a lot of those groups that were part of that organisation. But in terms of what we've put on display just for this exhibition, you've got great sort of um, badges, protest badges. You've also got a fantastic letter of thanks from the Victorian AIDS Council to Jan Hillier and um, I think it was Doug Lucas who ran pennies and pokies at the Prince of Wales for many years and raised funds for the Victorian AIDS Council when they wouldn't have had the extensive funding that um, gradually came to them through government. Um, So those little sort of touches are really nice, those handwritten correspondence we don't necessarily see so much anymore. And it was placed in a frame by Jan Hillier, you know, and obviously shown at one of her bars probably. And I think it was just showed another sort of way that um, supporting each other back in those days. You must have quite some extraordinary pieces from the pre-decriminalisation era where bars were the only places really where people could go and meet apart from people's private homes or or beats. Uh, There must be some incredible stuff from from before homosexuality was legalised in Victoria. Well, look, we have, you know, some really interesting logbooks from one of the early, um, I guess, pre-date switchboard as such, but when Society Five, who were one of those um, early organisations um, that came out of the camp sort of campaign against moral persecution, and they record people um, calling in to these helplines and just telling their stories of what they're experiencing at Beats, um, how police are, um, you know, targeting them, how they're being arrested. And so that sort of is pre the gay law reform as such, when the law was changed. But um, those people are the ones who we really thought about a couple of years ago when the government decided to expunge some of those convictions, you know. So, um, yeah, it's a a really interesting uh, account, that sort of logbook that sort of tells those stories of, of, you know, the, the people who ring up are really concerned if they've been arrested, that their workplace will find out, they'll lose their jobs, they might face jail time. You know, it's quite, it's quite, um, uh, yeah, it, it reminds you of what a lot of the um, forebears have gone through in that way. So, Luciano, tell us the backstory to how you and Georgia Keats got together to work on this amazing project. Like, what was the brainchild of it all? Uh, So we met at university doing a Master's of Education um, and Georgia had launched a clothing brand, Butch Clothes, during COVID, um, which she's continuing to do. And we were sort of looking at ways that we could work together on something. Um, And both of us had this strong interest in history, but also education and sharing the history because Melbourne doesn't really have the same... um, 
I guess, ghettoization that Sydney does, where there's um, the street where all the gays are. Like, Melbourne's history is spread out and everything was so temporary, like two or three years before um, landlords found out and people had to move on. So we really wanted to do something that gave back to the community, that educated the community, and also... um, like this year being the 40th year, uh, anniversary of the decriminalization of homosexuality and the opening of the Pride Centre, we thought it was a good opportunity to put something together that sort of gave an overview of the context of the past so that we can move into this new chapter in our city and state's history and acceptance of queer people. It sounds like you really unearthed how queer people lived uh, in the decades before before decriminalisation. It sounds like you've really delved into Melbourne's underground queer history. How exciting. It was really fun and we couldn't have done it without the archive support. We're so lucky in Victoria and Australia to have the Australian Queer Archives documenting all of that, all of that content because otherwise... Um, like it wouldn't be there. Like it would, someone made a decision to start collecting things, and that's really um, it's meant that we can do projects like this, and it's it means that young people now can go and look at experiences of people from the past. Like even when we were setting up the exhibition, like it was so great to be able to look over meeting notes, like something that uh, I guess is like not the most important document, but being able to like see that these were real people and see their little notes have written on the side. And yeah, it was really beautiful to be able to connect to these people from the past that we share so much with, um, share so much experience with that um, we may not be able to meet. And of course, Melbourne has such a rich history of queer community organisations. Uh, it must have been so fascinating to kind of see, you know, how they evolved. Yeah, it was interesting to see the key players and how they moved around um, and what their next moves were, like particularly Jan Hillier um, and all of the different venues that she ran um, campaign. Like it was, yeah, really interesting to see how these different community groups started, the divisions of those community groups and how that led to greater liberation for different parts of the community as we've moved, as we've progressed, I guess. I guess um, like... Even today, not all parts of our community are as equally liberated as each other. And we hope that through this project and understanding where different communities have come from in the history of different groups, um, people will, queer people will take on the fight for equality for all of us. And Anne, as the president of the Australian Queer Archives, you must really see its significance in providing a framework and a guide for people to navigate the future by educating them and informing them about the past. Yeah, and I think that's um, something that being at the Pride Centre will also enable that, you know, more of that local community will be able to come in and learn more about the queer histories of Melbourne and we've found that with our history walks you know the history walks that we've done across Melbourne for 20 or so years um, they are frequented by people from our community but also you know people from uh, the broader community who just really want to be able to know those queer histories because queer histories haven't been part of any sort of um, ongoing education or they don't feature in our museums they never used to they're more so now but So they're really keen to know more about their local area, know more about people in their family who might have lived um, 
a queer life. So, yeah, it's exciting that um, we can share that more broadly as well. So, Luciana, you've kind of set up a blueprint for mainstream museums to kind of, you know, explore queer history and showcase it. Yeah, it would be wonderful if there was... uh... There has already been a lot of mapping exercises around the world to document queer history, but it would be wonderful to see that, uh, yeah, enter more of the public realm. Um, uh, Georgia and I are really fortunate to um, be supported by um, Midsummer and the city of Yarra to um, sort of take the queer history that we've collected within the city of Yarra and take it to the streets. Um, So we'll be painting a mural in Fitzroy or Collingwood. I always forget which one it is. Um, That that sort of gives an overview of the queer history of Melbourne and then produce a audio walking tour that will share the queer history of Yarra for listeners. So we're hoping through this project that we can um, engage yeah, a wider community and those people that are interested in learning um, from outside the LGBTQIA plus community um, of our histories and the work, that, work and contributions that we made to develop the city that we live in today. So how can people see Queer Ways at the wonderful Pride Centre here in Melbourne? Yes, it's a wonderful building, so I highly recommend coming down to the Pride Centre to look at the exhibition. There is a secondary exhibition, the inaugural exhibition on at the same time, which is Identity Transformation and Adornment. Um, uh, And so so they're on the two gallery walls in the uh, base level. Um, uh, It's public access, you just need to check in and then... um, explore the different artworks through augmented reality. I, there, if you are unable to get to the Pride Centre, there's also the web exhibition on our website. But if you can get to the Pride Centre, I highly recommend it. It's a really beautiful space. Um, and hopefully, once everything returns a bit more to normal, there can be a lot more public events there over the summer. Luciano and Angie, thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. Thank you. Thank you so much for Cheers. having me. Bye.
Sylvester there, Marty Real, taking us out other gorillas with dare. We'll catch you next week on your face.
In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. I think 3CR is the voice of the people, speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think, and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear.